Well, we're picking up here after an extended break for Advent and the Christmas season. We're picking up with the book of Acts. So where were we? Where were we? Well, we were in the middle. We broke in the middle of a council. We were in the middle of the first council of the church, the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Actually, quite epochally important event. Uh, We looked at the first half before Christmas Uh, And there we heard the Apostle Peter's testimony, his testimony about God saving the Gentiles, the ethne, the peoples, giving them the spirit, making no distinction, he says, between them and us, between them and the Jews, cleansing Gentiles, shockingly, by faith, cleansing their hearts by faith. And Peter, again, this is just before our text from Acts 15, he continues addressing the council and he says we cannot place them under the yoke of circumcision and the law of Moses. He says because it's a yoke that neither we, Jews, nor our fathers were able to bear. We haven't been able to keep the law. And Peter concludes his testimony by saying that we Jews will be saved through the grace of God just as they Gentiles will. So you have Right, one God, because there's one God, there's one faith, there's one way of salvation. At this point, the text says, all the assembly fell silent. Peter is reporting deeds which to us may be commonplace, but which in this context produced awe. And they brought a holy hush over the crowd. They're reflecting. They're trying to assimilate these mighty and really surprising acts of God. And they proceed, and this is where our reading this morning picks up, they proceed to listen to Paul and Barnabas, relaying what God had done through their work among the Gentiles, signs and wonders. And after Paul and Barnabas are done, then James speaks. And James' response to this council is determinative. His is the decisive response to the assembled Synod, if you will. Now, this James was the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. He was known as James the Just. And he became the leader of the Jerusalem church, as you can see here. He's the author of the book of James. He's one of the pillars that Paul refers to in the book of Galatians, along with Peter and John. He's a pillar of the church. The risen Lord appeared to him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, giving him a status akin to the apostles. So he's a revered figure in the early church. And it seems likely that here he's functioning as something of the moderator of the assembly. So after all the testimonies in and all the debating is done, James speaks. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And so we'll make three points. They're there in your bulletin. Um, on the outline page, the people, the prophets, and then the judgment. So first, the people. James begins, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he said, well, that's the Hebrew name for Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. This language for visitation is rich language. It it was used when God historically visited Israel. So, visiting here, like visit, 
is not a neighborly stop by for a chat. It means God is arriving and acting to save, to redeem, to uphold his covenant, to keep his promises. The Greek Old Testament uses this verb to speak of God's coming down and visiting Israel at the time of the exodus from Egypt. You might remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesies about the coming birth of John. And he says this. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And just after that, Zechariah says, The day spring from on high, the glory light of God himself, shall visit us. So when God visits, he takes decisive action, often historically crucial action. He visits at these junctures in redemptive history. We heard the gospel text. You have Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem, recognizing that they're rejecting him, that they're going to be destroyed. And he says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation." You were visited and didn't even know it. Now, when God visits his chosen people, the Gentiles, what is he doing in this visitation? Well, the text says, from out of, right, the prepositions are important, from out of the Gentiles, he takes a people for his name. That's what God is doing in the apostolic testimony from out of the nations, gathering a people for his name. Now, the word for people here in this text is often used to describe Israel, right? Ethnic Israel, as the people of God. It's actually used to them seven times in the book of Acts to this point. They are the people, right? The original people, if you will, that God took for his name. So, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, right in the Torah, Deuteronomy 14, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people, an ethne, right? A, 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 a people, right? You, he has chosen you to be his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. God chose Israel. And that sentiment is scattered throughout the Old Testament. We heard it in our Old Testament lesson this morning from Exodus 19. Israel's gathered at the foot of Sinai to enter into covenant with God. And God says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. So the use of that word for people here in our text for Gentiles is really telling. What is said of Israel is now said equally of Gentile believers. Thus, 1 Peter chapter 2, right? Peter says to a Gentile church, we heard this in our call to worship, you are a chosen race. That's Israel's title. You are a royal priesthood. That's Israel's title. You are a holy nation. That's Israel's title. You are a people. That's Israel's title. For his own possession. 
And you Gentiles are such a people, why? For what purpose? Peter says that you might proclaim the excellencies, right? The divine splendor, the goodness, the attributes, the glory of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is always the worship of the triune God that is the end of all God's purposes, right? He he redeems us unto worship. You've been called out of darkness for this reason, that you might be a proclaimer, right? That you might burn for the worship of the sovereign God. Isaiah 43 speaks of Israel, God's choice of Israel, and says, They are the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That is the highest, chief, primary vocation of the church. Chiefly private, but also uh, public, but also private worship of God. So we can draw like a preliminary conclusion here. Since there's one God who has one name, and of course by God's name we mean his divine glory. He has one name. He justifies Jew and Gentile in the same way he reconciles them both in one body, giving them both one spirit. Then there is, as we see here, one people of God. Throughout all of redemptive history, from the beginning of the world to the end, there is one people of God. A people consisting of Jew and Gentile, taken, visited, for the sake of God's great name. A name manifested, of course, fully in Jesus. There we see the name. The only name given under heaven, whereby we must be saved. So that's the people. Almost no higher dignity can be conferred on you than to be called the people of God. So the second point is the prophets. This is not a novelty, is what we see here. Right? James speaks, you know, with this, he says, that is, with this taking of the Gentiles for his people, James says the words of the prophets, plural, agree. So James says, what's going on here with the ethne, the, the, the people groups scattered throughout the world, is what the prophets foresaw would happen. And notice the first thing James does in his determinative sentence is he appeals to Scripture. He actually quotes the book of Amos here. We'll look at that in a minute. But that tells us something, something very, if you will, Protestant. The council is subordinate to Scripture. Right? Scripture determines what's, what the council's going to do. Scripture is appealed to as the final authority in this early case of controversy. The voice of the Spirit speaking in Scripture, that's supreme. So James says this, what's going on with Paul, what's going on with Barnabas, is what the prophets predicted. And he cites Amos chapter 9. After this I will return, this is Amos, And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. It's a text about restoring the long-fallen Davidic monarchy. Might not be where we would go, right? Gentiles are being saved and they're believing in the Messiah. What's going on? And James says, well, what's going on is the Davidic monarchy is being restored And God is creating a spirit-filled temple people of God under the Davidic king. 
The angel, you might remember, said to Mary at the Annunciation, He will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, that is, over the house of God, forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. The Davidic monarchy is the establishment of Jesus as king, primarily over the church, which the Westminster Confession calls the kingdom of God. So James looks at what's happening. He says, here's what's happening. God is restoring the fallen Davidic monarchy in Christ. The risen Jesus sits on the Davidic throne now in heaven. And God does this. Verse 17 says that the remnant of mankind or the remnants of all the nations may seek the Lord. That's the part that James is focused in on here. Again, Gentiles being saved means some from among the Gentiles are being saved. You'll see the same thing in Acts 18 in Corinth. God tells Paul in Corinth, listen, I know you're afraid. I know you're facing opposition. But you must keep speaking in Corinth for, because there are many in this city who are my people. I'm going to call my people out of Corinth, so keep speaking. So here, James says the nations, the ethne being saved, means remnants of the nations are being saved. And James says this is what the prophets predicted. That is what's happening in the early chapters of the book of Acts and what's continuing the life of the church today is what all the prophets pointed to. The promises are always global promises, international promises, right? The promises to Abraham through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The promises are global and international before they're narrowed down. This is what the prophets predicted. And just to clarify what's meant by this remnant of the nations. What does James mean when he says the remnant of the nations might seek the Lord? Well, it tells you in the next line. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. All the Gentiles who are effectively, sovereignly called by God's powerful name. That is, elect Gentiles from every nation are gathered into God's holy nation. Israel is replaced and expanded. Continued, not replaced. Continued and expanded in the holy nation of the church. Drawn from all the nations of the world. It's a remarkable thing. As how many, how many Gentiles? As many Gentiles as were appointed to eternal life. Believe. We read that back in chapter 13. This is the fulfillment of the prophetic vision of the nation streaming into Zion. We're talking here then about what the church has been and what the church is called to be. An international remnant. Nevertheless, a great multitude of called Chosen Gentiles coming into the new covenant under the Davidic king who rules over the house of Jacob. The church. That's what you are. Now notice these Gentiles are called by my name. Israel is the people called by God's name. The house, the dwelling place for his name. And now Israel's continued and expanded in the church. Right? So Israel's restoration 
and the gathering of the Gentiles, they belong together. They entail one another in the body of Christ. This is what the Lord says, James says, who makes these things known from of old. That's the quote from Amos. What is happening in the church, James sees, is what God said would happen through the prophets. Out of the nations, God would call a people for his name. And that's what you see in Revelation chapter 7. When you see the church worshiping in heaven, it says you see a great multitude from out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language. So in that sense, the church is the original multicultural, diverse, unified community. It's a picture of what the world should be and what the world is going to be. So third then, the third thing, um, the judgment, James's opinion. His, his, now, he hasn't actually made his decision yet in the council. He's just quoted the prophets. So he renders this decision. He says, therefore, my judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Well, given what he's just said, this is not surprising. I mean, that's the basic thrust of James's decision. As difficult a decision as it is, there are parts of it that are contested to this day. But Gentiles don't have to become Jews to enter the people chosen for God's name. The house of David. Right, do you understand that? Like, I know you think of yourself as a Christian. But you should think of yourself as someone who lives and dwells in the house of David. Under the Davidic king. The new covenant really is tied to the Davidic covenant. So then James, he gives a series of four things, a mix of like moral things and apparently ceremonial things. And he says, if you're a Gentile, you should abstain from these things. And interpreting them has been a matter of some contention. So let's, let's just list them. He says, abstain from idolatry, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from what has been strangled, and abstain from blood. So there's a lot of questions here, but it's important to see that this could not be read as an imposition of the law of Moses on the Gentiles. Because that would contradict everything Peter and James have contended for to this point. Gentiles do not have to become Jews. The point of this fourfold list is that, yes, Gentiles do not have to become Jews, but they can't continue to live as pagan idolaters either. Right? All four items on the list are linked to pagan temple idolatry. Food, which accounts for two items on the list, sexual immorality and idolatry are all linked together in one passage, 1 Corinthians 10, about pagan idolatry. So this charge then from James and the council would benefit Gentiles, but it also helps them not offend sensitive Jewish consciences in the early church. And James refers to this. He refers to the watching Jewish community. In verse 21, he says, listen, from ancient generations, Moses had people who read him in the synagogue. He's read every week. Right? The synagogues are reading the Torah every week, and they're going to try and impose the Torah on you Gentiles. We must not do that. We must not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. But we must also remind the Gentiles that as believers, they must flee from pagan idolatry. They must flee from uncleanness. And we're told in the text that this advice seemed good to the assembly. Like the Holy Spirit gave a kind of unanimity. A oneness of mind. And the assembly proceeds to actually write a letter to the Gentile churches communicating their decision. 
Now, obviously, this is far away, perhaps, from where a lot of our lives touch down in the 21st century, but it is foundational to the church's being and existence. What does it say to us today who seek to follow Christ in the world? Especially those of us who are Gentiles, ethnically speaking. Three things, I think. Three things in in concluding here. Three things. This is the first one. You have been visited. In Jesus Christ, God has visited you. And he's taking you out of, from out of the nations, from out of the ethnicities, to be the multi-ethnic people of God for his name. Israel is not replaced by a federation of covenanted nations. It's replaced by the international holy nation of the church. There's one holy nation in the new covenant. That's the church. All the other nations are under the Noahic covenant. So you are now, with believing Israel, the people, the chosen people of God, his, and here's the beauty, his treasured possession. Upon you, the name of God, the name of God and his glory rest. And there's no greater nobility than that. God places his name on you. Bearing that name, you are the people I have formed for myself. Again, God is always the end. I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings and took you to myself. God forms us for himself that we might declare his praise. So the community, is a, the community of the church is a beloved community. It's a community with open borders, if you will, to all races and generations and to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. It's an international community of praise and worship of the God who is the creator and redeemer of all. That's the first thing we learn here. The second thing is, is to remember the importance of this Davidic covenant. That Jesus is the Davidic king. That he's assumed the Davidic monarchy. And that he reigns over the house of God. This restoration, of which you are a part, the prophets predicted you. Predicted. Predicted that God would call you out of the ethne, out of the peoples, into this glorious temple people of God. You're caught up in that movement. Finally, the last thing from this council to us. While we're saved by grace, we're saved apart from law keeping or from needing to become Jews or keep the Torah. If we are to bear the name of God, then we're summoned to show forth the family likeness, right? If we're going to bear the name of God, we want to show forth the family likeness. And so we don't seek to give unnecessary offense. And so in turning to God who has visited us, we turn from idols. This is the fruit of repentance. It's the fruit that the gospel preaches. And this means we must continually flee from idolatry and immorality. You know, James says, um, the council says at the end something very telling You know, this is a very convoluted, complicated area. It was contested here. It was contested in Galatia. It was contested in the early church. But James says, listen, if you flee, you Gentiles who believe in Christ, if you can flee from idolatry and sexual immorality, you'll do well. And that's so true, right? If, If we can stay away from idols 
and sexual morality, you'll do well. Things will go well. So James gets the two big things right and calls us to flee them. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's the moderator of this assembly. You know what James will later write in his first epistle? He'll later write that the wisdom from above, this is a beautiful passage, right? Is first pure. And then it's peaceable. Like it's peace-seeking wisdom. It's reconciling wisdom. And then it's gentle. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. And then he says it's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. James chapter 3. Right? By God's grace, this James has demonstrated that very wisdom here in this council. He's navigating this complex issue. And he's managed to not trouble the Gentiles, to keep us free from the law. But also to remind us, visited by God, people of the name of our duty of grateful obedience. We do this every week, right? We confess our sins, and then we remember that God, who's freely forgiven us, calls us to then live out the ethic of Matthew chapter 5. Not as law for salvation, but as grateful fruits and evidences that we are saved. James has done that. And he's protected the concern, the chief concerns of the Jewish brethren at the same time. So then, as subjects of the Davidic king, right, the people taken from among the nations for this glorious, undefiled name of God, flee from idolatry, flee from sexual morality. As the letter of the council will soon write, says, if you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Amen. Amen.